Welcome to episode number 58 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and I am pleased to bring you the audio of our Lord's Day sermon that took place on August 8th, 2021. Reformation Roundtable is produced by Christ Covenant Church. We are a Reformed and Evangelical Church here in Lewis County. And on August 8th, we all gathered on the Lord's Day for Covenant Renewal Worship. It was our 12th time together since our launch. So we have been going almost for an entire quarter of a year. That's pretty amazing, actually, when we consider the providence of God in making this happen. If you'd like to join us for our Lord's Day worship, we would love to have you. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, and there you will find the times and current locations. Right now, we're meeting at 930 at the Fords Prairie Grange. If you happen to be listening to this and that date is long past, then you might want to check the website to make sure we're still meeting there. But we would love to have you come And with that, we will go ahead and turn it over to the Lord's Day service audio. I hope you enjoy the sermon, and I hope you join us for Lord's Day worship. Our meditation this morning in preparation for worship is coming from 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Let's pray. Lord, your people cry out to you for deliverance. As Elijah was afraid, we are often fearful of the world around us, but we pray that you would strengthen our hearts, Lord so that we could trust in you and have faith in your providence for our lives and for the outcome of our foes. Lord, we often feel as we're alone, and that work is often accomplished by the devil. We are not alone, and we know this. We know that you preserve a remnant, and that we trust in you to deliver those whom you have called to faith, to the fullness of your grace. Give us strength in the midst of trials, we pray. Amen. Okay, in our meditation, we're looking at, we looked at 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3, and so I want to read a little bit more of that story from 1 Kings, starting in about verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So Elijah was distraught. He feared for his life, and he had fled to the wilderness, ready to die, despairing of his life. This was Elijah, the prophet, who had predicted weather, who had raised people from the dead, and confronted Ahab. He had challenged the prophets of Baal head to head, and he had made a mockery of them. What was happening? How soon did he forget the promise and the trust and the the perseverance of the Lord? How soon do we forget 
former triumphs of God in our lives. When confronted by Jezebel and her threats, Elijah then melted. So bold was he in the challenging of Ahab and the prophets of Baal, and yet a little while, and now he's running for his life. Do we find ourselves praising God one day and running for our lives the next? Trust God. Have faith that he remains our stronghold and our fortress. No matter how bleak the outlook, we can trust him and trust in his word for true, steadfast, and life-giving enrichment. We know that God is with us, and oftentimes we forget this. Um, the The fleeting pleasures of sin ensnare us. So as we reflect on this, let's consider our frailty, and please join me in confessing our sins. Psalm 34, 8 through 9 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Our text this morning comes from the book of Haggai. Book of Haggai. If you want to turn there in your pew Bible, you can, or you can just listen to the word of the Lord as well. Haggai is the third book from the end of the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew and go backwards, you'll get to it. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page uh, 941. 941. All right, this is chapter one of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. 
Father, you have given us your words that we might be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained by it. Would you please bless the preaching of your word this morning? Please guide us as we seek to understand your revealed will for us. And we ask that you would change us in all the right ways by these glorious words from you. We ask this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so before we get into Haggai this morning, that's where we're going to be. But before we do, uh, before we dive into the book of Haggai, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 21.1. This is only one verse, but I think it sets the tone for understanding the book of Haggai. Proverbs 21 verse 1 is in some respects key to understanding what Haggai is all about and why it was taking place. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So, Go back with me about 1,700 years. It's the year 312. A Roman emperor on the verge of a major battle in which his army was severely outnumbered reported experiencing something both miraculous and undeniably world-changing. If you've ever heard of Eusebius, he is a historian, and Eusebius describes the experience like this. I haven't told you the guy's name yet, so maybe you already know. A most marvelous sign appeared to him from heaven, the account of which it might have been hard to believe had it been related by any other person. He said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription, conquer by this. At this sight, he himself was struck with amazement, and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition, and witnessed the miracle. Close quote. So, the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor who experienced this amazing sight was Constantine. None other than Constantine. And and whether the vision actually happened or not really isn't that important. What is important is that following that battle, which they won, Constantine set about on a quest to spread Christianity throughout the world. He ended pagan sacrifice. He legalized practicing Christianity. He built churches all throughout his empire. He made the Lord's Day a legal holiday. Basically, he did more than that, but he became one of the biggest proponents of the spread of Christianity. Now, he did it very imperfectly. He was not a perfect guy. But he did more for Christians as a civil magistrate than any had up to that point in history. He was the most powerful man in the world, and his heart was nothing but a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, who turned it wherever he willed. So, getting back to Haggai, we need to place ourselves, we need to place our minds in the context of when this particular book was written, because it happens in the context of ruling kings. Now, Christ's incarnation is still over 500 years away. The Jews had been taken into captivity decades prior to this, prior to the, to the writing of Haggai. 
Um, And everything that the Jews had worked for had been taken away from them by Nebuchadnezzar. It probably felt like they would be in exile forever, that the wicked would be ruling over them forever. And I think to some degree, as as Christians, we can relate to this. Uh, Many of us feel that we will be in a state of whatever it is, maybe perpetual COVID madness forever. Maybe we're going to have vaccine passports all the time, continual isolation, restricted travel, basically treating everyone as though they're a walking uh, plague. You know, we think back just 20 years ago to the good old days of 20 years ago. 20 years ago, 9-11 hadn't even happened yet. The TSA didn't even exist. (laughs) America was a different world. And as we see our nation unraveling at an exponentially increasing speed, we might be tempted to think that it will always be like this, as though the wicked will always rule. And I'm sure the Jews felt this way at the time when they were suffering under the hands of these tyrants. But, you know, they had all these promises of God, and yet here they were, prisoners in a foreign land, kept in bondage by pagans, who plundered all the gifts God had given them. And yet, and yet, in all of this, God's promises never faltered. He had laid out quite clearly what his expectations for them were in Deuteronomy 28. There were blessings for obedience. There was curses for disobedience. God, of course, was the one that sent them into exile for their disobedience. But he'd also promised them deliverance, specifically to the faithful remnant those that were caught up in the national sins of the people. And that's exactly what he was in the midst of accomplishing. So Ezra actually does a really good job of setting the stage for us. So I promise we're going to get to Haggai, but if you, if you look in your Bibles at Ezra chapter 1, Ezra comes um, right after Second Chronicles and right before Nehemiah. If you look in your Bibles at Ezra chapter 1, we're just going to read four verses there because it sets the stage for what's actually happening in uh, the time of Haggai. Um, So as we think about Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart being like a stream of water in the hand of God, and we try to place ourselves in the context of the Jews at the time, listen to, or or read along if you like, to the first four verses of Ezra chapter 1. Okay, this is Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So God had stirred up the heart of Cyrus, just like he did Constantine, and he turned it like a stream of water to do his will. Cyrus, by his own account, was the most powerful man in all of the earth, and yet here he was, compelled by God to make sure this tiny band of faithful Jews rebuilt their temple 
and had all the assistance, all of the assistance that they needed of men, beasts, silver, gold, to build the house of God in Jerusalem. This was all because God stirred up the heart of Cyrus. So this is wonderful. God had delivered the Jews from their captivity. Everything's good, right? Happy ending? Well, not quite. Things did not move forward smoothly on this project. If you read through uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find that the, the, the Jews were under constant pressure to stop building. Uh, in fact, in chapter 4 of Ezra, uh, we won't read it now, but the enemies of God's people connived in every way imaginable to stop the progress of the temple. First thing they did was they falsely offered to help with the work. They tried to be subversive and get in there. And Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua, um, or in this case Joshua, it's the same name, saw right through that and pretty much told them to, uh, to hit the road. Uh, then God's enemies tried to intimidate the people uh, and to stop working on the temple. They basically tried to discourage them from continuing. I don't know, maybe they uh, accused them of systemic oppression or something. Um, but that didn't work either, so they went with a little cancel culture. They wrote a letter to Artaxerxes and bore false witness against the action of the Jews, falsely accusing them of rebuilding the city so that they could revolt against him. And this approach did work. Because in Ezra chapter 4, we read that the work on the house of God came to a standstill. So everything stopped. So now many years have passed. People continue with their lives, though. They're still living around, they're still living in this area that Cyrus had sent them to. They have families, they raise crops, they shepherd their flocks, and they build up their houses. Politically, they have been shut down from being able to build the temple. Cyrus is long gone, and the political powers of the day are loath to allow the Jews to build God's house. So God's people become content. They become content with just simply not having a temple unto the Lord. They had the place where they could do their sacrifices, but they didn't need a temple. They were content. So, if you're still in Ezra, look at chapter 5. Turn over to chapter 5 and look at verse, the first two verses of Ezra chapter 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who, were, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jehozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So everything that took place in Haggai is explained in those two verses. All of this happened, everything that we're about to read happened because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. None of these things would have happened had God not sovereignly placed his will upon the heart of Cyrus the king. However, this is important. In his sovereignty, God still placed the actual work in front of his people and expected them to bring forth his kingdom. They weren't doing it, though, and that was the problem. And now we have the context for Haggai. So let's dive into it. We'll start with verse 1. So go, turn back in your Bibles to Haggai, and we're going we're gonna to march our way through this chapter. So in verse 1, um, we, have, um, we have this uh, some dates, and we have a lot of names. Uh, second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but um, when I read verses like that, it's very easy the first time I read them for my eyes to just kind of glaze over um, because there's, there's a bunch of names, there's dates, uh, and I know they don't use the same calendar as us, so it, it all seems arbitrary and a little bit confusing. But, but let's break it down because it's not as confusing as it might seem. Uh, let's, start, let's start with just talking about the people. So in this first verse, there's four guys. There's Darius, who we only really hear about to set the date. Then there's Haggai, he's the prophet of the Lord, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. That's it. Now, Darius is a fairly new king. That's only his second year reigning. Haggai, of course, as I just said, is the prophet or the mouthpiece of God to these other two men. They are the the, the focus of this prophecy. These other two men have names that are usually given in three parts. They say the name, the father of the name of the person, and their occupation. So Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel and is the civil magistrate in Judah. He's the governor. But it's really just Zerubbabel. That's just one guy. And Joshua, or in Ezra it says Jeshua, but it's the same guy. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, is the high priest. So two guys, Zerubbabel and Joshua. It makes for a little bit of clunky reading, but generally you're going to find these guys' names listed with their entire title. But don't, give it, don't get overwhelmed. It's still just two guys. So one of these guys, Zerubbabel, is the civil head. He's the governor. And Joshua is the ecclesiastical head, the high priest. So we have both the church and state present. Haggai, the prophet, is speaking the words of God to the priest and the king or governor of the Jews. So we have prophet, priest, and king all in verse 1. Uh, and one last thing to note before we move on to verse 2 is the time frame. The first day of the sixth month is not actually not June 1st um, because that's, that's our calendar now. Um, it would have been, I have no idea why, but I'm just taking, their, taking them at their word, it would have been August 29th. So this was uh, August 29th would be the first day of the sixth month. So, so it's actually very close to where we are in our own calendar right now. Uh, we base our calendar off of the coming of Christ. And of course, at that time, the Jews did not use that calendar. Um, they used a lunar calendar, and it, obviously Christ hadn't come yet, and so they didn't have the, a Gregorian calendar where we say B.C., before Christ, and A.D., uh, the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. Okay, so it's August 29th, 520 years before Christ came, and there are four guys, Darius, Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So Haggai is prophesying the words of God to both Zerubbabel and Joshua. And as he relates to them that the Lord of hosts, and he relates to them that the Lord of hosts is not happy with them. And our first clue is that that God isn't happy with them. It comes from the phrase, these people. God says, these people. You don't ever want God to refer to you as these people. We don't want him to refer to us as these people. This shows that you are far from him. We want to hear God refer to us as my people. That's exactly right, my people. Think about, you don't have to turn there, but think about 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You all know this one. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. So we really, if, if God's referring to us as these people, we know we're in a bad spot. So we want God to call us my people not these people. And in order for that to happen, we must humble ourselves for God to lift us up. 
So he is near to the humble and to the brokenhearted, and he opposes the proud. Um, So these people are making excuses for rebuilding the house of the Lord. They're making excuses and are saying, the time just isn't right. So they seem to know what time it was. So let's look at verses 3 and 4 and see what God has to say about that. So verses 3 and 4, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Yahweh speaks to Haggai and relays the word of the Lord, which is a denunciation of the people's misplaced priorities. Their priorities are all screwed up. They've totally missed how they ought to structure their lives. In verse 2, the people are shown kind of in a tongue-in-cheek manner to know what time it was. They knew that the time was not right for building the house of God. In verse 4, God somewhat acidly and rhetorically asks them, basically, since you know so well what time it is, why do you think the time is right to build your house and not my house? Why do you think the time is right for you to be living in a paneled house while my house lies in ruins? There is certainly, there's certainly nothing wrong with paneled houses. But when the house of God is lying in ruin, and the excuse is being made that there isn't time for God's house, that is the t- uh, but there is time for my own house, then we've got a big problem. Let me say that again. When the house of God is lying in ruin, and the excuse is being made that there isn't time for God's house, but there is time for my house, then we've got a big problem. Let's move on to verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 5 exposes us a second time to the phrase, Lord of hosts. And if you read Haggai from start to finish, you'll hear that phrase 12 times throughout the book of Haggai. Whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, many of you guys know this, the translators are conveying that the name used is Yahweh, the highest of all God's names. And hosts, as you probably know, means a mass of people organized for war. This means that Yahweh is referring to himself as the Lord of armies. The Jews, think about the Jews at this time. They're this small, oppressed remnant of people who seem to be at the mercy of all of those around them. And so therefore, God is careful and intentional to remind them 12 times throughout this short prophecy that he is the God of armies and that he is with them. Now, that, that, that phrase, God of armies, is something, uh, Lord of hosts, is something that we see all throughout Scripture. Um, Psalm 48, verse 8 states, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Uh, but even more prominently, uh, there's another story in which this title, Lord of hosts, plays um, a very prominent role and that's, the, uh, that's in the battle between David and Goliath. Um, David, of course, is the underdog. Um, he understands that he is not fighting on his own. And so in 1 Samuel 17, 45, we read, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. So the Lord of hosts is with his people, and we should be both 
comforted. We should be comforted by this, but we also should be reminded of the great reverence, the great awesome holiness of that Lord of hosts and respond appropriately. Um, so uh, in Haggai, the second part of uh, Haggai chapter, uh, uh, verse 5 here says, consider your ways. So we're only going to hear that phrase twice, consider your ways. But, but it's important to, to highlight the fact that God is calling us to give careful thought to how we respond to the word that he's revealing through Haggai. So when God speaks to you through his word, don't be flippant. Don't be flippant around God. Take his word and, and handle it carefully. He can be boldly approached. Amen. Jesus Christ makes his, his throne accessible, and we can boldly come before him. But we must still carefully consider our own actions in light of his revealed word, will, and remember that he is a consuming fire. The same author that told us we can boldly approach the throne of God also says that he's a consuming fire. All right, verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your, your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Uh, it's often been said that experience is the teacher of fools. Um, that, that is to say that some people just don't get the message until they experience it for themselves. That's not to say experience is always the teacher of fools, but just in some cases, that's the case. You can warn them all day long, and in the end, they just have to experience the consequences themselves to learn. Um, This is where the Jews were at. They were so wrapped up in their own sloth, or maybe it wasn't sloth. Maybe they were just wrapped up in building their own sumptuous houses. They were working really hard on it, but it was on their own things, that they were numb to the commands of God to build his house. Therefore, God sent to them raw poverty to get their attention. Nothing would grow from what they planted, and little would be ready at harvest time. And when they sat down to eat, they'd, they always left the table hungry. That's a horrible thing to have happen. We're not going to leave the table hungry today at our feast. But, but to leave the table feeling hungry and unsatisfied is just an awful thing. Something that I've almost never experienced. Um, when they would drink, and, and this, the, it, we don't really see this in the ESV, but if you read it from the NASB, this verse is referring to alcohol. It's referring to wine or, or strong drink. When they would drink, um, they wouldn't even have enough booze to get drunk on. Like, this is how much God is, is taking away from them. He's even taking away their ability to go get drunk. They'd put on clothes, but the clothes wouldn't keep them warm, and all their wages would go into the safety of a coin purse only to be lost. So then moving on into verse 7 and 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Verse 7 repeats verse 5, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of armies is calling us to consider carefully what he is telling us to do. In verse 6, he tells them what they are doing wrong, and in verse 8, he tells them what they ought to be doing. And it's, it's really, this is a great verse because it's, it's so like God to just give us these big things to do and to just trust him with the outcome. It's super simple. He says, go up into the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. That's very straightful. That's a very straight, uh, simple and straightforward command. Uh, as far as goals go, it's extremely easy to quantify. 
Well, did you go get wood and build a temple? However, carrying it out requires skill. It requires determination, wisdom. We're not always told. And, and, and so God gives us this very clear goal, but oftentimes he leaves it to us to figure out how to go about doing it. And also in this verse, God gives, uh, so we're not always told why God wants us to do things. Um, in this case, he could have just said, go get wood, build a temple, period. We, we, we should do it. The people should do it. But in this case, God tells us the why as well, which is always, it's always fun when God gives us the why. He tells us, he gives us actually, it's a blessing to know, to know the why. He doesn't always tell us that, but it's a blessing to know. And so the reason why he wanted it, he wanted to be pleased by our work and he wanted to be glorified in it. He wanted the temple built so that he could be pleased by our work and glorified in it. Now you guys know this, glorifying God is the chief end of man. That's why we've been placed on earth. We exist to bring God glory. And because our God is a gracious father, he's also pleased with the works we bring to him in our faith and our humility. How many of you fathers or mothers for that matter are pleased when your children bring you their works? Maybe it's a picture. Maybe they built a birdhouse or they mowed the lawn. Are you pleased with them, with their work, because of the excellence of the work? Yeah, maybe. Um, Its excellence may be part of it. But at the core, you're pleased with their work because they are your children. And you are pleased with them. How, How much more is our Father in heaven, who is the perfect Father, how much more is he pleased with the work we bring to him because he is pleased with us? So on one hand, he's given us a big command. He's given these people a big command. Go get wood and build the temple. That's a, that's a big deal. We need to do it excellently. But we also can do it in faith, knowing that he is pleased, he will be pleased with our work because he's pleased with us. So we see here that God is telling the people to work hard, skillfully and with wisdom, and to build him a house that he will be pleased with and glorified by. Going on to verse 9. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. So having told the people what to do, God reminds them of their present situation. Don't forget, this is what's happening. He says, he tells them, um, he tells them what's going on. He said what to do, and now he's saying, don't forget where you're at. They've had all of their plans frustrated, and we are told here that it was God who was frustrating them. It wasn't bad luck, and there was no way to chalk it up to mystery. Well, we just don't know why this bad thing has happened. No, they expected much and got only a little, and what little they were able to bring home was blown away. Who blew it away? God did. But why did he blow it away? He even tells us that. Because his people left his house in ruins and and intended to their own affairs instead of attending to his. You know, when you think about the ministry of Christ, it's interesting to note some of the things that he paid extra emphasis to during that ministry or, or the things that the gospel writers emphasize from his ministry. In, in, um, one of these emphasized points um, is found in at least four different places in the gospel. Could be more, but I at least found it in four different places. And it's the theme of adding to those who are faithful and subtracting from those who prove faithless. 
I'll just take one verse as an example. Matthew 25, 29, Jesus says, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This is precisely the place the Jews had found themselves. They expected much and got only a little. And what little they had was blown away by a God who was witnessing their unfaithfulness to him. Their homes were immaculate, and God's house was in ruins. Now, how does that matter to our own lives? Well, we are incredibly busy people, aren't we? We're constantly attending to the panels in our own house. And in many ways, we're right to do so. God calls us to take dominion over the world. Um, And Paul tells us that he who doesn't provide for his own house is worse than an unbeliever. So providing for the panels in your own house is a good thing, and we should be doing it. However, are we certain that we don't hide behind our busyness? When we find ourselves crazy busy, is it with things that advance the kingdom or simply advance our own homes? Verses 10 and 11, let's keep going. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. So because the people have focused so heavily on their own household and have neglected God's house, he has stripped away everything that was distracting them. No more dew to water the earth. The time has come for drought. Now, this is where God gets linguistically creative. The Hebrew word for ruins is hareb, H-A-R-E-B. And the Hebrew word for drought is horeb, hareb and horeb. In fact, we we heard it uh, this morning in that passage out of 1 Kings. Elijah flew to, to Mount Horeb. Um, so therefore, since the people have neglected the house of God and they let it fall into Horeb, ruins, God will bring on them a Horeb, which will cause their possessions to fall into Horeb as well. So we have ruins and we have drought, Horeb and Horeb. Everything will be affected by this drought, by this Horeb. The land, hills, grain, new wine, oil, everything that comes from the ground on man and beast Even on all of their labor, this drought, this horeb, this desolation will um, find itself. God has called for a horeb against everything they have right down to their labor because they've allowed his house to fall into horeb or ruin. So verse 12, there's some hope here. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest... And all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. This is the point in the story where something truly spirit-filled took place. Haggai lays out the case against the Jews. The governor, the chief priests, and the remnant of the people are all present. They all hear this. God's Um, God's prophet has dealt this crushing news. Everything they've worked toward has been blown away, and it's being blown away by God. So these people are coming to the realization that bad things happen. 
And not just because God allows them to happen, but because he actively causes them to happen. Now, when we, when we come to realization that God actively causes these kinds of things to happen, it's a watershed moment for a lot of people. A lot of people come to this point and they, they reject God. They become an atheist and they say in their heart, there is no God because look at the world, bad things are happening. Or, or this is the point when we see that bad things happen. This is the point where our faith in God becomes refined, strengthened by fire and inoculated to the cares and doubts of this life. Every person faces this. All throughout Christ's ministry, he was dealing the bad news over and over and over again to the people, and people were constantly getting offended at him. But not everybody. Some people were cut to the heart, and they changed. But not everyone. But every person does have to face this question. God is not a spiritual vending machine spitting out self-esteem and attaboys. That's not what God does. He's a holy God. And he loves us dearly, but he demands our obedience and allegiance. When we see him disciplining us, we must decide if we will submit or perish. One of my favorite books in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Horse and His Boy. And there's two horses in it, Bree and Huyn. And both of them are terrified of lions. Just, they lose their minds. Bree especially is this war horse that is so proud of his courage, and he is very courageous. There's, he'll run into battle without thinking twice, but if it's a lion, he loses his mind. So at one point in the story, um, this lion, who we find out to be Aslan, um, is chasing them, and they're both, they've lost their minds. Bree has lost all of his dignity, but they can't run any further, and the lion is, to, from their perspective, the lion is waiting to enact their doom And so they're naturally terrified of this lion, which is actually Aslan. However, when confronted with Aslan, the Christ figure, Huyn, who has been given this this view into who the the lion is, she tells the lion this. She says, please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. So our response to the discipline of God is, when he blows away those things that we've worked for, must be thankful joy. We must rather be eaten by Aslan than fed by anyone else. We should count it all as joy when we face trials, for we know that God has sent those trials to us to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So here's the good news. How did the Jews respond to this discipline of Yahweh? Did they get offended and and say, I can't believe, I could never believe in a God that allows bad things to happen like that. Verse 12 says they obeyed the voice of God and they feared the Lord. Amazing. These people had been hardened to the things of God. They really only cared about themselves and their own houses, their own lives. But when God interrupted everything and placed his own sovereign hand amongst their midst, they responded with, repentance. Now the text actually doesn't say repentance. It doesn't say they repented, but their actions do. Their actions were consistent with repentance. They turned from their wicked ways of disobedience and disrespect for God and his house, and they repented by showing obedience and reverence. It's one thing to to say you're repenting. It's another thing to actually do it. It's also uh, important to note that they were obeying God by obeying Haggai, a man, 
This Haggai was the one that was giving them the word, and they obeyed what Haggai was saying. Now, ultimately, they were obeying God, but sometimes we over-spiritualize our obedience by talking about uh, obeying God, but we wouldn't dream of obeying some person in authority over us in this life. Oh, well, I'll, I'll obey God, but I'm not obeying anybody here. We might say we'll obey God, but not these sinful men and women around us. Children, this is for you. Do you want to obey God? Do whatever your mama or your daddy tells you to do. Right away, all the way, and cheerfully. When you do that, kids, you are obeying God. It's very, very, very simple how to obey God. You obey your parents. Then Haggai, verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. All right, so verse 13, we might read that. We might think, man, that was a little bit redundant. The messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Seems kind of superfluous. But, but I, I want to encourage you to guard your heart against thinking this way about any of God's word. Um, or, or carefully consider your ways when you think about this. Every word of scripture is God-breathed, and the Holy Spirit never wastes his breath. Every word of scripture is God-breathed, and the Holy Spirit never wastes his breath. Every single word in God's word is important. So when we come to a section that repeats or seems long-winded or has names that we don't understand and can't pronounce or gives us lots of dates or lots of families, take heart. Treat the word of God with the reverence that it deserves. These passages are all there for a reason and we must treat every word as sacred because it is sacred. Also, when we do that, God will bless us because when we wrestle with texts like these, and remember that the Bible is actually a miraculous book. You, even if nothing in the Bible was true, and everything is, but even if nothing in the Bible was true, this, the simple fact that a book of this size written over so many hundreds of years that is so internally consistent itself is a miracle. This book is miraculous. But when we actually wrestle with these kinds of texts, we start to notice things that we might not have ever seen before. For example, in this verse, verse 13, it'd be easy to miss that the name of Christ is right there in front of us. I am with you, declares the Lord. Does anybody remember what the name of Messiah would be? Emmanuel, right? And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So here it is right here. God is promising Emmanuel with his people, that he will be with us. Okay, we've got two more verses. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So now this is one of my favorite passages so far in this book. In verse 14, we read about the stirring work of the Holy Spirit of, of the Lord. Um, remember when we started with Ezra chapter 1? Um, everything up to this point has been brought about because of what we read in Ezra chapter 1. It began with Cyrus, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom. So the Lord stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, which resulted in him giving the Jews, of ta- uh, giving the, Jews the task of rebuilding their own temple. Then after the work came to a standstill due to political pressure, the Lord again stirred up the hearts of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people. 
This stirring of the Spirit of the Lord brings about big changes. It caused them to work and to focus their priorities on what actually mattered. They now shifted from sloth uh, and or selfish ambition to work on things that advanced the kingdom of God. May God stir up each one of our hearts here in Lewis County um, as we might come to work on the house of the Lord of hosts. Um, Another amazing thing that we learn in verse 15 is that this happened just a little over three weeks after the initial word of the Lord came to Haggai. And honestly, I find this amazing. These people have been blasted out of their lethargy in a very short amount of time. In less than a month, they went from ignoring and neglecting the house of God to fully throwing themselves into the work. This is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit in proof that all of our hearts are like streams of water in the hand of the Lord. And the final verse of chapter 1 bookends the fact that all of these things are going on during the reign of Darius. Like Cyrus and Constantine, Darius is but an appointed servant of God. The civil magistrate exists to reward the righteous and punish the evildoer. And this is exactly what will happen as Christendom continues its slow march throughout the world. So that one day, as the prophet Habakkuk foretold, the knowledge and glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, we can't close out this first chapter of Haggai with all of its discussion about rebuilding without first reminding ourselves that with the coming of Christ and the final judgment being leveled against the Jews, with the destruction of that temple that they built during Haggai's time, With the destruction of that temple in 70 AD, there is no longer an earthly temple to rebuild because there's no longer any need for one. There's no more sacrifice that needs to to be made. Christ was our final sacrifice. But as the body of Christ, we are also the living stones that make up the spiritual house of God. If you will, listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The call of Haggai still applies to us even more so now. Whereas before, Haggai was calling the people to rebuild the temple that would one day be destroyed, we are called to build upon the cornerstone that is Christ, to build up the spiritual house of God. And we know that when we do, we will not be put to shame. So as we close, let's leave you with three practical ways in which to respond to God's house, to, uh, in which to respond to God's word with obedience and reverence in building his spiritual house. Number one, consider carefully your own priorities. We are placed on this earth to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Do your daily and weekly activities facilitate this or do they distract from this? Are you so busy with putting up paneled walls in your own house that you miss the opportunities God sends your way to make the spiritual house of God more glorious. That's the first thing. Consider your priorities. Number two, 
Having carefully considered your priorities, seek activities which will strengthen and make God's house more glorious. Look around the room. You are seeing the temple of God. If you head on over to Romans chapter 12, you'll see all kinds of things that you can do and that you should be doing with these people. To give just a, just a few, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Those are just a few of the things. But seek activities which will strengthen and make God's spiritual house more glorious. And then finally, number three, pray for the Lord to stir up your spirit and the spirit of all of us here at Christ Covenant Church and here in Lewis County, as he did for Constantine, Cyrus, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the faithful remnant. When we ask the Lord to stir our, our spirits, we must also be ready to obey what, his, what he is stirring us into. It may be that we have to step away from our own paneled houses while he directs us in a different direction. Being fellow heirs to the kingdom makes each one of us kings and queens of heaven. And we can't forget that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it in whatever way he will. Let us be willing and joyous participants as God will, as God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we close, I'd like to close with a prayer that was written by John Calvin from his commentary on the book of Haggai. Will you pray with me? Grant, Almighty God, that as we must carry on a warfare in this world, and as it is your will to try us with many contests, O grant that we may never faint, however extreme may be the trials which we shall have to endure. And as you have favored us with so great an honor as to make us the framers and builders of your spiritual temple, may every one of us present and consecrate himself wholly to you, And inasmuch as each of us has received some peculiar gift, may we strive to employ it in building this temple, so that you may be worshipped among us perpetually, and especially may each of us offer himself wholly as a spiritual sacrifice to you, until we shall at length be renewed in your image and be received into a full participation of that glory, which has been attained for us by the blood of your only begotten Son. Amen. As we approach the Lord's table, we must realize something enormous, something huge, and it's something you already know. In spite of the madness of the world around us, Christ is faithfully present with us right here and right now. Just as the Jews were surrounded by hostile pagans and yet had the Lord of hosts with them, so we have been promised that Jesus will be with us to the end of the age. Listen to the last line of the song we just sang. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Christ is here with us this morning. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And he is offering himself to us as our spiritual meat and drink. That is what the Lord's table is. So for those of you who are baptized and who are not under discipline of your local church, This table is for you. Come and welcome to Jesus. Now God's going to commission us out into the world as we reflect back on what what has been shared and taught to us today. We have our charge and a prediction and the benediction.
Our charge is this, just as the Israelites suffered because they did not care for the house of God, we must ensure that we are honoring God first in our lives and that we're building his house. God does not demand scraps, but he demands the first fruits. We are to honor, serve, and obey him with all our being. Let us live like that in the world and let us reap the benefits of following after him. Our benediction is going to come from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.